Well, today we will be studying Nehemiah chapter 7, the old 300. You might wonder what that is about. Well, my first teaching post was Texas history, seventh grade Texas history. I was so excited when my daughter got in seventh grade, and I told her, I said, Courtney, you're going to love it. The history of our grand nation, uh, state, sorry. <laughs> and I was so excited, and she was doing homeschool curriculum, and I looked at the list of subjects, no Texas history. They're based in Virginia. I thought, what kind of curriculum is this anyway? I thought, this isn't right. I mean, it could be, I could be charged with abuse or neglect by not teaching my daughter Texas history. So I went ahead and went to the Liberty to, to, uh, to buy a Texas history book, bought the curriculum. I'm so excited. And I even, I told Courtney, you finish this and we'll take you to San Antonio and we'll go to the the birthplace of Texas Liberty. I was so excited about it. Well, that's what we have today going on. But before we go there, I have to tell you what the old 300 is about. This is free. These folks were the first Americans to, the, to move to the vast wilderness we now affectionately call Texas. The Brown family did not arrive until 1837 after the revolution. We wanted to make sure everything was cleaned up first. And we came down from Tennessee. Well, the old 300 is a title of honor in Texas. Between 1824 and 1828, some 297 families purchased land procured by Stephen F. Austin. You may not know this, but Austin was reluctant to do so. Austin was basically fulfilling his father, his father's dying wish that he would go purchase land in Texas. And so that's what he did. He got some families from Louisiana and other parts of the South and offered land along the Brazos and Colorado rivers. You know what the cost per acre was? 12 cents an acre. That was at that time 10% of the cost of land in the U.S. Each head of the household received a minimum of 177 acres if you were farming, or you'd get uh, 4,428 acres if you were raising livestock. Mexico had four requirements. You had to become a Mexican citizen. You had to be of good character. You had to be Roman Catholic, which by and large did not happen. And number four, you had to improve the land within two years. So just as a side note, if you have little kids going into seventh grade and you haven't taught them Texas history, can we make this an issue of church, his, uh, rather church discipline, elders? <laughs> Well, today we're actually not studying Texas Old 300. We're studying Israel's Old 300. It's not 300. It was 50,000, which may seem like a large number, but it's nothing. It's a drop in the pan as compared to the number that stayed in Babylon. Well, these 50,000 came over under Zerubbabel in 537 BC. And some of you right now are having a really bad case of, didn't we study this already? We did. We did. This list, as we'll see today, is almost identical to the list in Ezra 2, so we won't study it quite as intently as we did Ezra 2, but the question comes forth, why did the Spirit have Nehemiah repeat this list in the, in the Bible? Why would he do that? Well, I can give you at least three reasons. Number one is to determine the pure-blood Israelites and to validate their property rights. 
It's important to note, folks, if you study Old Testament Israel, the land was kept in perpetuity. If you sold your land, you're going to get it back. Every 50 years, every land transaction, you would go back to the original uh, owners. If you were in the tribe of Reuben, you'd get your land back. Tribe of Judah, you'd get the land back. It would stay in perpetuity forever in your family. Why? Because it doesn't belong to you. Because it belongs to the Lord, and he would return it to its original occupants. So that's one of the reasons why you have this list. Number two, to encourage the Jews to move into Jerusalem. We'll see that in chapter 11. One of the main goals was not just to get the Jews back into the land, but back into the city of God's worship, Jerusalem. And number three, to confirm once again, a second time, God's chesed to his people in bringing them back to the promised land. That was not me clearing my throat. That's the Hebrew word chesed. It means God's loyal, loving kindness. When God, keeps a, when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Every time, every time. And they are his people and he brings them back to the land. So in verses one through four, we're gonna see that Nehemiah has, comes up with precautions for this newly walled city. He takes no chances. This is the word of God, verse one and two. Now, after, uh, now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. So what we have here is uh, gatekeepers, singers, Levites, they normally keep charge of the temple but they're also going to now keep charge of the gates of the city. Why? Because this is God's holy city, set apart for worship, lest they forget. And in particular, Nehemiah hands off to two men uh, in charge of the city. One of them is his brother Hanani. Hanani seems to be the civil leader, perhaps, and the other guy is the military leader. Hanani, the civil leader, he is the same one you saw in Nehemiah chapter one, where he tells Nehemiah, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. I think it curious, if you will, did Hanani have in mind all along for his brother to come and oversee the rebuilding of the wall? Can't help but wonder that. He just told him that in Nehemiah one and certainly Nehemiah is then on his way over. But then it makes you wonder, is Nehemiah kind of practicing some weird nepotism here? Like he's in charge, and now he's going to put his brother in charge of the city here. Uh, well, remember, Nehemiah is surrounded by enemies. The prophet whom he trusted, the prophet Shemaiah, lied to him, saying, come and hide in the temple. Can't trust him. Everybody's singing such high praises for Tobiah the Ammonite. And Nehemiah's got to look around and go, I can't trust any of y'all. I'm going to bring my brother in. So Hananiah, and then you've got another fellow named Hananiah, the governor of the castle. That's the, that's the military leader. Now, some commentators think that this is the same person. It may have been, but I think it's two separate men, as we'll see. Uh, Hananiah, the governor of the castle, that would be the military leader. And what we're going to see is leadership skills are important. But what's most important in true leadership? Godly leadership. There's two characteristics we see about Hananiah. Number one, he was more faithful. He was more faithful. To be faithful is to be true or reliable. 
1 Corinthians 4, 2, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. Keep his, keeps his word. It reminds me of 1925. I was not alive then. In the U.S. Open, there was a golfer named Bobby Jones, and Bobby Jones had just hit the ball just slightly while setting up for a shot. No one saw it, only Jones alone, but he was positive he had accidentally moved the ball, so he assessed himself a one-stroke penalty. He lost the tournament by one stroke. Others praised him for it. What was his reply? He said, you might as well praise me for not robbing banks. The point of it is, is this is what you do. He's faithful. Husbands, are you faithful to your spouse? I'm not asking about your body. I'm asking about your mind. Wives, are you faithful to your husbands? Do you pay your taxes? Do you keep your word? This is what faithful people do. They're not perfect, but they seek to follow the Lord. And we see that about Hananiah. We also see he's also a God-fearing man, the one who feared God more than many. We talked about the fear of the Lord a couple of weeks ago. Proverbs 3, 7, it says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's what happens when you fear God. You turn away from evil. To give you a couple of quotes, Oswald Chambers put it this way, When you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. George Chris, uh, uh, oh, Christopherson, he says, We fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear helps cure another. So, godly men, what else does he do? Verse three and four, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own houses. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. Now, stop there. Some houses had been rebuilt. We already know that. It's using really exaggerated language to make a point. Jerusalem is not a safe place. There's now a wall around the city, but there's so few people living in it and so few houses. If the enemies wanted to come in, they could. You need to populate it. So what he says, he calls for is, uh, don't open the gates. He says, don't open the gates until the sun is hot. That could have two meanings. One meaning is as you take it. The gates were to be opened only after the morning had progressed a little bit, not at morning light. And yet, I take it as perhaps the second meaning, and that is this. There's a Hebrew preposition that is, we translate it as until. Don't open the gates until the sun is hot, but it very well easily could be translated as don't open the gates during while the sun is hot. I think that's probably what it means. So the way it works is the gates were to be locked during the hottest part of the day when folks would be at rest. They were much more likely to be attacked then during the heat of the Mediterranean culture. And as you know, here in Texas, it's not just the Mediterranean culture. Uh, Hispanic uh, culture, many times, even in Texas culture, you, you take it easy during the hottest part of the day. You even take a siesta, perhaps. In AD 410, that's how Rome was captured, strangely enough. The Salarian Gate was rushed, and it happened at midday, when all those guards who should seize them were, as usual, 
dozing after a meal, said one of the historians. So they said, lock those gates. And notice, they also say, uh, notice he also says, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some in front of their own homes. That's smart. One of the commentators stated, this was the first neighborhood watch program. <laughs> and I think there's applications for us. I'll give you a couple of them. Application number one, the Lord calls us to be watchful where we are. Mark 13, Jesus says, be on your guard, stay awake. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Guard what enters your eyes and your ears. And for those of us that are parents in here, especially your family, especially There's a friend of mine who is a counselor, and he told me a few years back that kids as young as age nine were watching porn. And many of them, they could just access it. Parents, I caution you regarding letting your kids play electronics. Number one, I'm not opposed to electronics. Number two, I'm not opposed to the internet. However, I'm telling you, beware if they can see things they shouldn't on the internet. And many of us are way too quick to say, oh, I've, got, I've set guards, or I told them not to do it. <laughs> Please. The Bible warns in Proverbs about being simple. Do not be simple. We need to be wise. And if we have made that mistake, then fix it today. Application number two, I think the Lord calls us not only to be watchful where we are, but the Lord calls us to be witnesses where we are. Think about it like this. In some sense, guarding your neighbor's house from the wrath of God. Have you ever considered that? And you go, how could I guard my neighbor's house from the wrath of God? Well, have you told them how to escape the wrath of God? The gospel. Too many of us, perhaps, I hope you're not one of them, are you're waiting for the next mission trip so you could go give the gospel. That's a That's a mistake. Uh, Mike Talley, of all people, would be the first to tell you that's a huge mistake. Go on the mission trips, and yet at the same time, our first mission is our house, our neighbors, or wherever the Lord has called us to work. You can imagine, you get a knock, somebody's beating at your door at 6 a.m., and your neighbor's hollering out, my house is on fire, my house is on fire, help. And you quickly answer the door, and you say, I'm so sorry. I'm on my way right now to volunteer at the Houston Fire Department. I can't help you. (laughs) And it is a funny story, but it's shocking because many of us are just this way. I'll go around the world to witness, but I'm not going to talk to my neighbors who seem to me much closer to hell, perhaps, than you realize. So we guard. We guard our houses and we witness as well. Verse five, then my God put it into my heart to assemble the, mo- the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. Stop there. Question, how do you know as Nehemiah seems to know that a prompting is from the Lord and it's not from you? Has anybody ever struggled with that before? Is this from God? Is this my dream? Is this his desire? What? 
Well, I'm here to tell you, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know this. I know it's not from the Lord when it does not line up with God's word. But you have no idea how much I am in love with this person or how I want to do this. No. If it's not in God's word, if it's not allowed in God's word, it's not allowed. But I will tell you this. There are certain things that help, help me see that uh, we can trust the Lord to do what he wants with our lives. We see in Psalm 23, verse 3, it says, He guides me in passive righteousness for his name's sake. A shepherd guides a sheep where he wills. And you might think, well, I'm pretty obstinate. Well, I hate to tell you this, is the shepherd is much more powerful than you are. And he will even use your, um, your troubling spirit to make you more like the sun when he breaks your legs. So, Philippians 2 also is encouraging for me. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working in your life for his good pleasure, but notice what he's also doing. He's willing. What does that mean? Is, he, is, he take, is his will taking a backseat to yours? No, your will is taking a backseat to his. According to this verse, which says here that to will and to work for his good pleasure, how does that work? Well, he changes our will to line up with his. He doesn't do it like that, but he does it through a process and he does it with time. And then we wake up one day and think, I think I'd like to follow the Lord in this area. And your wife looks at you and say, huh? That's another story for another time. Let's continue on. We were not going to read all this. We're just going to hit some of these high, high notes. Verse 6 and 7a, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his house, to his town, rather, they came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Amiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mesphereth, Bigvi, Nehem, Baana. Here are the leaders of the people. I want you to note, though, some of these names and numbers, as we were to look in this text, are slightly different than Ezra 2. <gasps> the Bible's not right. No. No. I would tell you this. Some people may have come later from Babylon. Remember, Nehemiah is writing later than Ezra did. Plus, there may have been births, deaths that occurred after they arrived, so they would change names, they would remove names. Could there be scribal errors? Of course, sure. Nehemiah is working off a 90-year-old list of people. I'm sure it had been rewritten a few times, perhaps. But here at Grace Church, as well as every other Orthodox congregation in the world, you hold to the doctrine of inerrancy that the Bible is without error in its original manuscripts, and the autographs is the term it's used, and we ourselves have faithful copies of the originals. So take heart. None of these scribal errors affect your Bible teaching. They're not going to find an ancient text from, oh, I don't know, first century, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith and works. <gasps> no, you're not going to find it. Why? Because I trust archaeologists? No, because I trust the Lord. So yes, we have scribal errors, but we don't have anything that changes. As a matter of fact, you should do a study of the Bible, of the archaeology of the Bible. Just to give you a quick story, 1948, you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a little Palestinian boy 
according to the legend, if it's true, we, we don't know all the details, but he was with his sheep and one of them ran away. Actually, it was his goats. And one of them ran into one of the caves and he grabs a rock and throws it into the cave and he hears a crash. What is that? He climbs up into these, one of the Qumran caves and he sees these ancient little, um, basically, uh, what's the word for it? I'm blanking here. Yeah, urns. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, and he's got these and he realizes, what are these? He pulls out the scrolls and he takes them home. He doesn't realize they're ancient documents. They're scriptures. And you'd say, why, why would that community hide scriptures? Aren't you supposed to hide it in your heart? Well, yeah, but the problem is that sometimes those scriptures got really old and got really worn out, so they would put them in these urns. Why? Probably for the same reason when you come across it with an old Bible, you're like, I can't throw it away. It's the Word of God. And so they would put them in these urns, and what's fascinating about it is they found out that these, these Old Testament texts line up near exactly with what we've got in the 21st century. Certain changes in numbers, certain changes in names, no difference whatsoever in any of the vital doctrines of the faith. Amen? God preserves his word. It's his word. Continuing on, verse 6, well, 7b through 38, we won't read it, but just to note that these are the men of Israel. These are the regular Joes, the next group of people that are listed. I've listed all of them in Ezra 2, but we're not going to read them today. And really what it shows you with these regular Joes being listed, these are, this is the Lord's incredible mercy, God's great mercy. He lists these guys out, and it should be encouraging for you and I today. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father in heaven. I read a really bad commentary a while back, and it said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And then he describes us See how awesome man is in God's sight? Which, as far as I'm concerned, that's blasphemy. No. The, the importance is it's not the importance of us. It's showing us the incredible grace of God. He cares for us little dirt figurines here on this earth. Yes, we're made in the image of God that is not, did not erase with a fall, but it was defaced in the sense that we are now children of death. But the Lord saved us because he chose us, he died for us. John 10, 3 and 4 puts it like this. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. When the Lord saved you, I'm not saying you had a vision of Jesus Christ in front of you, but there was a certain point in your life that you believed, you trusted this. For some of us, it was much younger. For some of us, it was much older. So the Lord knows those who are his. But then it makes you question, well, doesn't God know everyone? I mean, he created everyone. And we would say certainly in his omniscience, he knows them. They are his offspring. Yet does he know them as a father knows a son? No. No, they're his offspring. And Jesus can say at the judgment one day in Matthew 7, 23, I declare to you, I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But take heart today. If you are in Christ, you were not only known when Jesus died on the cross, you were known before the sands of time began to even fall. 
God elected a people. The son died for the people. The spirit drew those persons one at a time. So take heart. Romans 8 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And some of you might think, well, yeah, foreknow. That means he, he knew beforehand that people would come to faith and trust him. And I would say, that's not a good reading of the text, actually. It has nothing to do with faith. It has everything to do with God foreknew them. He knew them in advance in his omniscience. These are the ones that I chose before the foundation of the world. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, some from all of them. Why doesn't he choose all? Because that would make you a universalist. That's completely opposed to what the Bible says. The question is not why didn't God choose everyone? Why did God choose any of us? So those are the regular Joes. Verse 39 through 42, those are the priests from the tribe of Levi. Remember, the, the priests are from Levi, but they're also direct descendants of Aaron. This is the priesthood. Verse 43 through 45, those are the Levites, made up of the singers and gatekeepers. They upkeep the temple. They guard the temple gates, but what else do they guard now? They're guarding the city as well, set apart for the Lord. Verse 46 through 56, the temple servants. These are probably the descendants of the Gibeonites. Remember the people of Gibeah that tricked Joshua, and you see in the, the text, and Joshua, they did not ask of the Lord. They didn't ask the Lord, and he tricks them, but they tricked Joshua. Uh, but what's interesting is they didn't kill them. They were Canaanites, but instead they made them wood choppers and drawers of water for the rest of their eternity here on the earth. But what was fascinating about that? Where is God's grace in that? Because they worked at the temple, and God in his own grace, I'm sure, saved many Canaanites that had to work at the temple in his mercy. And then finally, verse 57 through 59, these are the sons of Saul. Then you also have the sons of Solomon's servants. These are, these are probably the descendants of Canaanites that Solomon enslaved. They worked in tandem with the temple servants. So you have kind of a mixture of Canaanites in the mix. Now verse 60 through 65, all the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emir, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, sons of Tobiah, sons of Nakoda, 642, also of the priests, sons of Hobeiah, sons of Hakaz, sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Now, let me give you the scenario. You have certain people that say that they're related to others, and they're coming into the land, and Nehemiah says, you're not on the rolls. Uh, and now think about it like this, uh, without um, old personal identification cards, couldn't you have easily a Babylonian say, hey, I'm a member of the Jews. Take a look, I'm related to this fella. So the Jews were very specific of keeping good roles, but they can't be for certain. So they bring in the Urim and Thummim, and people say, what is that? Well, uh, Urim and Thummim, it's, it, it's Hebrew for lights and perfections. 
It's talked about in uh, Exodus 28. We know some things, but not too many things about them. They were two flat objects. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. They were two flat objects used by the high priest to determine the will of God. The priest would draw them out of his breast pocket that he kept here. And the Jewish historian Josephus said that these stones or flat objects would illuminate in the priest's pocket to give God's answer. One of them perhaps said yes. The other one said no. And uh, perhaps when it didn't work, it means there was no answer. And we see that actually in 1 Samuel 14, where um, God is not happy with his people, so he didn't answer them clearly. Now, just to be... um, Oh, exact about this. Josephus sometimes exaggerates. So we don't know if that's what happened. But we do know that it was used before the, uh, the Spirit of God coming to us in the New Testament. This is one of the ways they would determine the will of God. Sometimes they would cast lots. Sometimes they would use the Urim and Thummim. Now, I would say like this. These people were trying to get an Israel, and some of them were not of the right bloodline. Can I just say to you today... Aren't you so glad we live in the era of the New Testament? As I look around, I don't know how many of you are pure uh, blood Jews, but my guess most of y'all are Gentile dogs like me. (laughs) So be glad. Now, finally, verse 66 through 69, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, mules 200, uh, sorry, 736, mules 245, camels 435, donkeys 6,720. Do you think the Jews are interested in keeping exact numbers? I think so. Here we have Israel's old 300. Uh, really, it works out to 49,942. But this, they're bringing them back to the promised land. They're forming a new nation. Verse 70 through 73, now some of the heads of father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold 2,000, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little mixed up here. Verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now look up here. They keep saying they're in their towns and you go, yes, that's not good. They should be going to Jerusalem. That's where we're That's the ghost town that needs to get filled right now. And Nehemiah is going to work that out in a moment. But the reason why they're giving you all these numbers about derricks of gold and minas is because it's showing you something. What did God do to his rebellious people while they went to Babylon? He blessed them incredibly. These are really rich numbers and they give a whole lot of money. And you think, well, that's wonderful. God blesses us even, even in our midst of our trials, even when we disobey, the Lord in his kindness is gonna work it out for our good. We will be in pain, but the Lord will work it out for our good. And yet, what do you find out? Most of the Jews did not go back to the land. Most of the commentators think 
You know what the percentage of Jews that actually came back from Babylon to Israel? You don't want to go and guess the percentage? 2%. They could have all stayed in Babylon. They could have enjoyed an easier life. They didn't have to suffer the hardships of forming a new country. I mean, you may wonder, why leave in the first place? Well, the New Testament helps answer that. Why would a person leave metaphorical Babylon and go outside from the supposed safety of the world? Hebrews 13 tells us this, verse 12 and 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, what? Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. You see, the people of Babylon loved Babylon too much. They didn't want to follow the great shepherd. There may be some of you today that you don't want to go outside the camp either. It seems safe, and it's not. Hebrews 9.23 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, to be clear, you're not saved by carrying your cross. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you want to come after me? You're going to have to kill your dreams. Kill your desires in order to follow mine. You're not saved by works. You're saved by coming to the cross and trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. But ultimately, you need to know that the end game is not, oh, I got salvation. Get out of hell free card done. No. You see, Jesus came to restructure your entire house to knock it down to the ground. And some of you at our new believers are starting to realize that now. It's not just fun and games. This is hard. Yeah. But you have a shepherd who loves you dearly. He gave his life for you. You can trust him. If you're a believer today, I would tell you this. We ourselves are part of a traveling company to the Lord as we work our way to heaven. Be careful. You're not working your way to heaven. We are on the way to heaven. Our heaven is secure. And yet, what advice would I give you today? I would say, number one, we fix our eyes on the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Do you know at the end of Abraham's life when God had promised him the promised land, what part of the land did he own? Very small plot that was for his wife's death. He owns a grave plot at the end of his life. That doesn't sound like the promised land to me. But it says, Hebrews 11.10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Some of us have watched way too many happily ever after movies, and we think it's happily ever after here. It ain't here. This life is about pain, suffering, death. We look forward to the next. We fix our eyes above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Number two, each of us has a unique God-given role to fulfill in this life. We got a role to fulfill, y'all. Note the numbers. We got priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, sons of Solomon servants. You've got a role. Follow Christ. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. And I could take the first four words of Ephesians 2.10, and you could focus on it. For we are His. You don't belong to yourself anymore. I've got a dog named Luther that still thinks 
He is there for his pleasure and his benefit. He's a three-legged dog, which they don't take very long walks, so there's a positive side to this. But sometimes he wants to go on a much longer walk than I'm realizing he can't handle. And so I start to pull him back, and he digs his little paws in. He's a, he's a wiener dog with a terrier face. He's ugly. It's all homemade sin. And I look down at him, and I say, little man, you are not there for your benefit, your enjoyment. You are there for mine. Dogs understand that. Cats don't. We've got a role. Whatever the Lord calls you to, that's where, that's where you're supposed to be right now. But I don't like my marriage. Tough. The Lord has you there because he's going to make you more like Christ. Stay in that marriage. I don't like where I'm. I don't like this. Pray about it. Pray about the Lord can do these things. But the fact is, is don't go against God's word to somehow change your situation. I love what Jim Elliott said, who was among four other men who died at the hands of Aka Indians for the gospel in 1956. At just 28 years old, he's killed. And he wrote in his diary earlier, wherever you are, be all there. Wherever you are, be all there. Elizabeth Elliott wrote, who wrote Gates of Splendor, said essentially the same thing. She says, live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Live it to the hilt. If you are walking with Christ, you're in the will of God. You trust him. You move forward. You've got a role. You've got work to do. And finally, number three, beware of the wickedness of comparisons. Beware of the wickedness. Jeff, did you say wickedness? I said wickedness because that's what comparisons are. And we can compare our gifts or lack thereof with others. And we can also compare our crosses, can we not? Man, what I wouldn't give to have their cross. I mean, they, they complain about everything, how easy they've got it compared to me. You know what happens when we're comparing? John Piper talks about this quite a bit. It's pride. It's pride. I don't deserve this. I deserve more. And we're not embracing what God has for us. Spurgeon put it this way in the best way, I think. He said, at the Last Supper, there was a chalice for drinking the wine, and there was a basin for washing feet. I protest that I have no choice whether to be the chalice or the basin. Fain would I be whichever the Lord wills, so long as he will but use me. So you, my brother, you may be the cup, and I will be the basin. But let the cup be a cup, and the basin a basin, and each of us just what he is fitted to be. Be yourself, dear brother, for if you are not yourself, you cannot be anybody else. And so, you see, you must be a nobody. Well, praise the Lord, we serve a master that not only took the chalice for drinking the cup, he took the basin as well.